because we start in on Acts 9, right? We've been going through Acts, talking about the early church, and it's been kind of nice because we're a church is just starting out, and um, it's kind of nice to see what God's purposes was, the model that He had, and so there's some pretty cool stuff. So today, we talk about uh, St. Paul, right? We talk about Paul, and really, Saul of Tarsus. And it's pretty cool because it's a huge God story. Big conversion story. You have St. Paul, this guy who wrote 60% of the New Testament. What kind of guy would this be? What kind of guy would God choose to write? Like 60% of the New Testament, plant multiple churches, um, do miraculous signs and wonders, and just arguably be the second most, maybe to Jesus, influential person in the faith. What kind of person would God choose to do something like that? And so we get to see that today, the type of person that God would actually use to do something like that. And um, it's just another testimony of just how unbelievable God is and the types of people that He uses to do unbelievable things. And things that we thought that maybe were intended for evil, He can just turn around. And so I was looking, uh, I think I put a link on Facebook last night. So I was looking around and as I was thinking about you know, this passage and Paul and then my own life and just like the sermon preparation stuff and, you know, praying through the things that, that comes up. I happen to stumble across a story uh, from this guy from the 700 Club. This guy, um, I think his name was Kamal. Not Jamal, but take out the J, replace with the K. So this guy, Kamal. So Kamal, he basically grew up in a Muslim family. And from very young, seven years old, uh, elementary school, he actually went to Muslim camps, kind of like how we would send our kids to Christian camps. I went to Christian camp. Um, he would go to a Muslim camp. And there at the camps, they would teach them like the ways of Islam. They'd teach them about the culture of jihad and, you know, the things that go with that. And it was common in his household for his mom to tell him, um, son, don't worry, one day you're going to be a martyr for... Uh, for Islam, and you're going to bring glory to Allah, and you're going to bring glory to Islam, and always be ready for that opportunity. And so, since he was very young, you know, that was always ingrained in him, and that was just the way he grew up. That's just what he knew. And so, as he got older, uh, he grew up in the Midwest. As he got older, he uh, he started to want to uh, form like a jihad, and so he basically educated himself on on kind of how to do this and how to form a people to kind of come around him. And so what he did is he grabbed some other people in the area that were like, weren't really well off, that were kind of down and out. And he said, hey, do you want to join this movement, this thing that I'm doing? And so he got, you know, a few converts and some people to join him. And so one day, he's out on a, sort of a recruit trip to pick up some more guys, and he gets into a massive car wreck. He gets into this car wreck, and he's in really bad shape. And what ended up happening was I think he broke some bones in his neck and some other things. And so basically somebody rushes to the scene. Somebody else I was there, a witness. And they see him and they say, you know, are you all right? Are you all right? And then the phrase that stuck out to him was, don't worry about it. We're going to take care of you. So then the ambulance comes, takes him to the hospital. So then a nurse comes in. I think it was a nurse. You have to listen to his story. The way he tells it, you know, it's just right on the money. It's his experience. So then the nurse comes in and she says, oh, you know, oh my gosh, we're going to get you in the surgery right away. Don't worry, we're going to take care of you. And then the third person comes in, um, another doctor, somebody else on that floor. They say, don't worry, we're going to take care of you. So he remembers that phrase of we're going to take care of you. And he remembers that phrase for a couple of reasons because uh, all three of those people that came up to him were Christian. 
How did he know that? I don't know. He must have found out after. But they were all Christian. And he also remembered the phrase because when somebody says uh, in Islam, at least based on his experience, it was somebody's going to take care of you did not mean they're going to take care of you in like a nurturing kind of sense that you would think of. It's mean we're going to take care of you. Like maybe not what you intended, so that's what he's thinking. So, he's there. He gets his surgery and, you know, is in pretty bad shape. So he's going to need help, bless you. So he's going to need help at home recovering. And there's really no place else, uh, no one else at his place that can help him out. And so the, ortho- the surgeon tells him, hey, listen, why don't you come to my house? I'll come take, it, take care of you. And this guy's a Christian. And so, you know, Kalam didn't quite know how to handle that. He said, well, kind of okay. I don't have any other options. So then he takes him into his house. And then Kalam goes in to tell the story about how this guy just takes him in. He eventually gets him a car. He helps him get back on his feet. I think he even helps him get a job. But just really builds this whole relationship to where he's just living in his house and really has access to really everything. So that had quite an effect on Kalam. So he comes back to his apartment after he's kind of up and better now and feeling better, can get around and stuff. Comes back to his house. He comes into his apartment, comes back to his apartment, shuts the blinds, faces towards Mecca, gets on his knees. And he shouts out, he goes, Allah, he goes, why did you bring these Christians into my life? He goes, you know, I could deal with the car accident. I could deal with the difficulties that are coming from that. But these Christians, he said, they don't want, they're not out to hurt me. They're not out to kill me. He said, everything I've been raised in to know about them, he said, it's just not true. He said, I don't understand. Why would you do this to me? I'm really confused. I don't understand. And he goes, well, Allah, I just don't know what to do. So if you could, just please speak to me. And then he's telling the story, you know, and, and he's really into it. You know why he's doing it? Because it's his experience. And he says, you know what Allah said to me? And he just pauses and he goes, nothing. Allah said nothing to me. He said nothing. So then he says, he says, well, I just doubted my faith, you know, and I, and I just showed my weakness because I had doubt, because I questioned it. So he said, you know, you don't do that in Islam. So he said, I went and grabbed my gun. He said, I, I might as well just end it now because it, that's the wrong thing to do. And so he does, he grabs his gun. And he's going to get ready to do it and pull the trigger. And he says, all of a sudden, he just hears a voice. And he says, he hears a voice, and it says his name. He says, Kalam. He says, Kalam, what are you doing? You know, and now he's telling the story. And now you're like really engaged and listening because it's like, wow, this is so cool. And so, Kalam, Kalam, why are you doing this? And he yells, he goes, who are you? And, uh, and the voice comes back, and he goes, uh, I am the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then it says he drops to his knees. Not this time to face Mecca now, but because now he's coming in contact with God. So he drops down to his knees. And he yells out. He goes, Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he says, he just starts to weep. He goes, he goes uh, if you're real, if you're really God, he said, I need you to speak to me and show me that you're real because I follow Allah. And he said that just the glory just filled the place. And he said he just had this feeling over him that God's presence was just there and uh, from then there on out became a Christian and so now I think it's like almost 20 years later following the Lord strong and what he does he goes around trying to tell people that's in the Islam and the Muslim faith hey there's a God that's real and he says when he was praying an interesting side note when he was praying to God he said alright I will follow you I will die for you I'll be a martyr for you and he said that uh, God told him, and I don't know how he told him, but God told him, listen, I already died for you. 
I already died for it. Just a wicked cool story. So on Facebook, yeah, check that out. It's a video. It's like seven or eight minutes long. And I think I gave you most of it, but the way he tells it, awesome. Awesome, awesome. And that's the same God that we serve. And so today, we're going to look at God doing that to a guy, really, again, headed down the wrong path, the wrong idea, something totally meant for evil. Something, you got to picture that, like Satan is on the other side, seeing him and saying, yep, I got this one. It's sealed up. He's mine. And I'm going to get him to spread all the garbage I want him to spread. And we're going to take a look at a miraculous story you know, where it happens and it transforms the whole church. So it's cool. It's really cool. Very, very exciting. So we'll pick up today. So Acts chapter 9. And uh, the title of it, we have uh, Refined, Relentless, and Restored. Right? We want the alliteration with the R's. It just seemed to work here with Paul as we kind of talk about the story. So that would be the title of it. So we'll pick up in verse 1. So it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues to Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So we pick up in this story where Saul is there. He says he's still breathing out murderous threats. So the first time we see this Saul of Tarsus, first time we see him when he was there at Stephen's death, he was there, you know, probably unfolded, who knows how he is, he's there, and he's watching all the clothes of everybody stoning Stephen. And then we find out from later on that this guy is very well educated, really, really well respected. He grew up with this guy, Gamaliel, who taught him kind of the ways of the Jewish faith. And Paul, he was pure Hebrew pure Jewish. And so he was this really well-respected, refined guy. You know, he knew the right people. He was in the right circles. Highly educated. And the first time we see him in the Bible, he's standing at Stephen's death. And so you got to wonder, too, at Stephen's death, like, what effect did that have on him? Because he's there, he's seeing this whole thing go down. Stephen goes into this whole testimony. And then really... Throughout it, he gives the whole history of Israel, puts Christ in the right light, also indicts them at the same time. And as he's dying, it says he yells out. He yells out like Christ. He yells out and he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And he got to think. He was there and he saw that. And like, what effect did it have on him? Well, we pick up here and it says he's still breathing out murderous threats. It's like it turned it up for him, like a bunch of notches to just this anger, resentment, maybe jealousy, and it's just, you got to wonder, like, man, what was going on? Why was he reacting that way? But nonetheless, that's what he was doing. He was passionate about his traditions. And so it says he went to the high priest, he asked for letters to go to Damascus, so that if he found any there, he belonged to the way. And so this area of Damascus, I think we have a map up here, just so we can kind of see what it might look like. And so the map is kind of hard to see here. But basically, down here you have Jerusalem. And up here is Damascus. And that's kind of Samaria area. So that's when we were talking about Philip. Before I remember talking about Philip last week, he kind of took off into Samaria. And then right last week, he caught up to the Ethiopian eunuch. And he was down here in Gaza. Right? So everything's happening in the area. But basically, he's on his way up here to go persecute 
Christians, put them in jail, whatever needs to be done. And he's trying to get letters, trying to get permission from kind of head guys there. Hey, let me go out there and let me go do this stuff because I want to get them. I've got to lock them up. They're doing the wrong thing. Got to set them straight. And it says that they were known as the way. So if me and you are there, and this is first century Christianity, you know, they're known as the way. That's their nickname. That's their title. That's, that's their group. Are you guys part of the way? Yeah, we're part of the way. I guess we could like maybe bring that name back now, you know, the way. Maybe we'll get t-shirts kind of made up. CC Noggin will put the way on the back or something, right? It was the way. And, that, and it's referred to a lot in Acts. Like later on, uh, when Paul visits another area and he gets into some stuff with this uh, blacksmith guy and there's a big problem there, they're known as the way. When he's before Festus, this governor guy, He's known as the way. So they're just always, they're known as the way. So us, you know, we're part of the way. And it's significant. Because Jesus even said that himself. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Right? So the way, it fits right in there. They're part of this way. They're part of Jesus Christ, what he brought, part of the mission. So these guys are part of the way. We're part of the way. And in verse 3, it says, As he neared Damascus on his journey... Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And interesting here, it says he fell to the ground, heard the voice, right? Just a radical situation. I mean, try and put yourself there. And this light and the voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And, Paul, and he's persecuting the church, right? He didn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Um... Any other word, I mean, he takes that personal. It's the church. It's the bride. It's us, right? We're part of the church, right? It's his bride. This is like, this is, this is his baby here. You know, why are you, why are you persecuting me? He's tied hand in hand with the church. And that's why we talk about before and we take time to talk about, you know, the roles of the church and like, the missions of the church and stuff like that because it's important. Jesus considers that neck and neck with himself. Like, that's his baby there. You know, how you would value your husband or wife or a loved one, like, why persecuting me? It's tied hand in hand there. And so, I want to go, I think on the next slide, we'll read it in the NIV, but I like a couple of things about the King James, which we'll get to in a minute. So let's read the NIV version first. So he says, Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. He knew the title right away, apparently. He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And I kind of like this version better for a couple of reasons. And it's pretty similar. So in the New King James, and he says, And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. And so we, trembling and astonished, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And it says, Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And so he responds to him, and he says, I'm Jesus and you're prosecuting. He says, it's hard for you to kick against the goes, right? And I like it because that phrase is in there because it's a significant phrase. It's not in the NIV. Right? It's in the New King James. I wish they didn't leave it out, but they did. And basically, you know, it's worth it for you to be fighting against what I'm doing right now, right? The goes, I think I have a picture on the next one. What it is, is a lot of times like, they'd have these oxen. They'd be plowing a field, doing the work, getting it ready. And the goats, it's kind of hard to see, but there's sort of like a, like a wooden thing. Can you kind of see it right there? And so basically, and they're kind of made, different ones are made differently, but at least for this one here, 
you know, if you wanted them to sort of, you know, speed up and do a good job, you'd kind of lay off a little bit. If you wanted them to kind of pick it up a little bit, you kind of stick it right into them. You know, if they're doing a bad job and being really stubborn, you kind of lean on it, you know, and then they go. And then others are made a little bit differently um, to where there's kind of like a frame to it and there's like kind of like these pointy things sticking off. And that's why in some Bibles it says the pricks. And so they had these pointy things sticking off and then sometimes, uh, you know, to prevent kicking... Right, because if they were going to kick, they'd get that thing stuck right in them. Right, that would hurt. But it also would protect the driver too, just in case when you kick. And so he's saying, you know, God's saying to him, he's like, why are you fighting against the goats? He's like, I'm going to do my work. Like, you know, fight harder, but it doesn't matter. I'm God. You know, why are you fighting me? My hand is in this thing and I'm doing it. And the other cool thing is in verse 6 he goes, and so trembling and astonished, now he's just like probably overwhelmed at this moment, how do you respond to this? And he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And that's not an NIV either, but I like that response. It's like right then and there, he would just, man, conversion happened in a flash, in a flash. Which is kind of contradictory to Andrew Bolton because I got the quote from Billy Graham in there where he says, most times it doesn't happen in a moment but it takes a lifetime you know, to develop. But in this case, it happened in the flesh and his response right away was, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And we'll come back to that later on. So we pick up in verse 7. It says, The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. So Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And so he's blind, he couldn't eat or drink. Verse 10 it says, In Damascus there is a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. Verse 11 says, The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So a cool situation. Saul is praying, and in a vision, apparently God is going to tell him some guy named Ananias is going to come along and pray for him. And now God is also translating this message to Ananias, saying, Hey, you're the guy that's going to go talk to him. Verse 13, he says, Lord, I've heard many reports about this guy, right? All the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name, right? This is the guy, he got the permission, he's here to do harm. I mean, I don't even know, what do you compare this to? Maybe a, a bad comparison, but one you could make of maybe Osama bin Laden getting saved and he wants to come and speak at your church. I don't know, you might be a little bit hesitant. Or maybe he wants to come hang out at your house and grab some dinner. Just your family hang around with him? Like, I don't know. I might be a little bit hesitant. Just maybe. So verse 15, very important. It says, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. Right? That's one in your Bible you might want to underline, maybe circle. That's, an, that's a very important phrase. So Paul is going to be the one to carry the name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And verse 17 says, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, How cool is this? He goes, Brother Saul. Pretty affectionate kind of greeting right there. He just, he just took him right in. 
So we're talking about somebody else getting saved and being radical. I don't know if Brother Bin Laden. I don't know. Brother. You know, he just takes him right in there. He just, okay, God, and runs with it. So his brother saw the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he's there for a twofold reason. So that he can see again, so somehow God's going to give him sight back, and he's also going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we've been seeing this kind of through the book of Acts, where we know that as Christians, when we accept God, we accept Jesus, or we say that prayer, it says the Holy Spirit comes and immediately takes residence within your body. But we've also seen through here that there's been some instances and cases where apostles, at least in this time period, had to come out and actually lay their hands on people and they would actually be empowered by the Spirit and the Holy Spirit would just come on them. And usually something like what happened or take place. And we saw that before when Simon the sorcerer saw it. And he saw them lay on the hands and the Holy Spirit came on. He's like, got the hands in the pocket to wall it out. He's like, I'll pay you good money for that. Like, show me how to do that. Right? So it's interesting that that had to happen, but it had to happen. And he used Ananias to do it. And a cool thing about this is that we never hear about Ananias again in the whole Bible after this. Right? We heard about another Ananias before, Sapphira, right? They made the mistake, aligned to God. But this Ananias, never hear from him again. God's just using him. Just using regular people. Never hear from him again. And it's a pretty cool thing. I mean, he's the guy. Ananias is a pretty big player in this thing. Like He's the guy that sort of like ordains and commits Saul will be Paul and gets him ready like for the ministry. Very cool. And you never hear nothing again about this guy. He just shows up at the right time, ordained by God, and there he goes. Very similar last week to Philip. He saw the Ethiopian eunuch. Right? He comes alongside, helps explain. I mean, and God like, changed it, right? Remember Philip was way up here and God took him down here in the desert, kind of where nothing was going on. Why would he do that? Like, what is that all about? But he brought him down there, explained to him the word. The guy got... Saved, took Jesus immediately, got baptized, Philip was gone. And that's just the way that God uses us and places us and strategically just does things, just uses people. Don't have to have the letters after the name, don't necessarily have to know all the right people. Just submission and open, openness and willingness to the Spirit of just being used by Him. That's what really matters. And so it says in verse 18, it says, Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. And he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And so an awesome, awesome story, right? About somebody completely transformed. You know God intended it for evil to get this guy so involved, to persecute this church. Um, and what Satan really didn't even realize is like, man, that was just fuel in the fire. Fuel in the fire. From the very beginning of this whole church thing, the whole birth of the church, that Pentecost, Satan's been trying to mess it up, and he's been trying to persecute them on unjust terms, using bogus arguments, planting bogus people, and has done nothing but fuel it. Because you can't stop it when God is in the middle. You just can't. Kicking against the goats, I guess. Good luck on that one. It's not going to happen. So, I think for 2011, you know, what do you do with a story like that? And how can that maybe apply to today, like an hour from now, you know, on Tuesday? How can we maybe apply it? Well, a couple things. One is, 
a story of this miraculous proportion has to affect our attitudes. Like, if you put yourself in the story and you actually believe in what you read, if you actually believe in what you read, that's the same God doing that stuff and He's here right now. It's the God that we have access to 24-7. And the Holy Spirit is the one right now doing the bidding of where we're at. And so that should mean that when we come to prayer and talk to God and we're involved just really in anything, it's like we're just sitting there waiting like, as is this an opportune time? Like, what does God maybe want to do? And you just have those eyes for that. And now you come with expectation to maybe the impossible becoming possible. And sometimes that's a struggle because, you know, I, I don't know what your life is like, but my experience has been just by meeting and being around certain people, they just sort of kind of just get into a rut and a routine. And then really... You know, maybe you've been disappointed and hurt by things. And so, you know, the really heavy-duty things that we're going to take in prayer and then possibly not have them answered because then that's just going to be really difficult and just really annoying. And just maybe we just kind of stay away from that and just give them the other stuff that, like, maybe seems a little more realistic that might happen. Let me kind of put a cap and a little bit of a limit on God. But that's not like what we're called to do because, man, he could do the impossible, right? He took Kalam, he took Paul, he takes... There's tons of stories. Tons of stories. I mean, where I found that story, you know, I was looking around at different things. There was just stories and stories of just people, just God just transforming lives and just doing stuff through ordinary, regular people. And you think of Kalam's story, the people involved in the process, like they had no idea just by a phrase, by what they said. You know, the person that came to the accident, the doctor that was there, whoever else came in the room after... God is just using people and just doing stuff. And so our attitude of expectation that God is really God and not being afraid to actually put things at His feet no matter how impossible they might seem. And so as I was like, you know, studying this message, going through this stuff, um, you know, it affects me too because I'm thinking about this stuff. I'm like, yeah, but I want to put this into practice and what's one way to help? And so here's what I was thinking. So three things. So maybe this week, well, you have your bulletin right now. I don't know if you have a pen. Um, if you need a pen, maybe just raise your hand and we'll get you a pen. But three things. Maybe it would be helpful, I know it's helpful for me, just to write down three things that I feel like in my life right now, to see God really show up and do something, I, I would just be like, I don't know, it seems pretty impossible for God to really do anything with this right now. Just like three kind of things. Just write down three things where it's like, I'd love to see God's power in this thing and I don't really have any answers to it and I don't really going to know what's going to come next. You know, and to write those things down. And it might be one or two things that have been written down and prayed about for a long time before. Might have been. And maybe you're tired of praying about it. Maybe you're tired of praying about it. But man, you think about, remember when Jesus was born and they took Him to the temple and he had Anna the prophetess and he had Simeon. These guys were, Anna was praying her whole lifetime and God told her, you're going to see Jesus, you're going to see the Christ. And she came there. And it kind of came, finally came to fulfillment. It took a little while, but it came there. Now the other thing is, so as I wrote these three things down, right, so I wrote them down, I'm thinking about it, I'm praying about it, I'm still thinking about it, I'm praying about it. Um, you know, for me, it'll also be good for me too that I'm married so that me and Julie you know me and my wife are doing this together right we're doing it together 
And I was thinking, well, you know, if I was single, if I, if I was single, should I be doing this? And so I was like, you know, it would even be a good idea for me to just involve another friend that I could trust to keep it in prayer and sometimes ask me about it. Say, hey, how can you join me in prayer with this? You know, so it's not just my lone thing, but I get somebody else to help me out. But the other thing I was thinking about, writing down these three things, I was like, you know, I can get weird about this too because I'm writing down these three things. I'm asking God to do the impossible, come alive. And so as soon as I say that, I start thinking about ways and situations it might work out and how it all might go down. And so maybe even subconsciously I'm thinking that, okay, this means like it was God when it works out. So I was like, oh, that's probably not the right way to look at it. Because how do I, you know, how do I know? How can I really judge or gauge that? And so my response really is to the three things that I wrote down now that I've been thinking about. My response now is, God, I just want you in the middle of it. I just want your will to be done with it. And I need to have some evidence, some proof, some confirmation that you're involved in this process somewhere. Show me. It might make me look bad. It might not make me look bad. I might have to do some things I'm uncomfortable with. But show me that. Because now I'm not asking God to do something to where I want that result. There's a difference there. It's a switch. It's a change. It's God, you be in the middle of those three things. Show me you're in the middle of those things. And just guide it where you want it to go. I might not like it. Sometimes I really don't. But, help me with that. Help me to get there. You know, I think that's absolutely one application just based on this one section that we can definitely do and put into practice. And then the other thing I was thinking about by looking at this story is that you saw Paul's reaction when this happened. God came to him, the light came, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I just pictured Paul maybe like on the ground and just the light just on him and he's just, you can't even see, he's just like overwhelmed, sort of bewildered. And, you know, God says, hey, this is my work that I'm doing. You're kicking against the golds. Your efforts are futile. You can try and end this thing, but it's not going to happen. And you're persecuting me. And for whatever reason, Paul just has a transformation right then and there. And then his response was, right, we read it in the King James, he just says, what can I do? What can I do? And almost all the time, when you've had a real encounter with Jesus and you've actually considered and maybe grasped a little bit to some degree of what He's done on the cross, man, how much of that debt He actually paid in full. I mean, man, wouldn't it be cool if someone just came along and wrote you a check to cover the rest of the mortgage? Especially nowadays, it's like underwater, right? That would be cool. But man, He just, on the cross, just took everything that could never... You could never even pay it. You'd... You can't even pay it. You just can't even get there. But he did it. And just the natural response is, oh my, what can I do? What can I pop? What can I do? How can I fit in line? What's going on? Where can I plug in? And again, as I read that and look at that, I'm like, man, you know, I could just see myself over the years just being like, just to turn into routine a lot of times. Just a routine a lot of times. You know, go here, participate in this, sit down, listen to that, just do this and... And then, you know, start to, you know, kind of like some of my friends at work it just praise the routines. And it's like, how ridiculous is that? It's just so ridiculous, so ridiculous. That's not the life. It's, what can I do? And it's interesting how that light came with that. Isn't that kind of like a cool thing, like the light came? And when the light comes from God, He's always shining it on things. Right? He's shining it and, and bringing it to light. And you have to let that in there. And so I was thinking, what can I do? 
You know, just that response in general. Well, one thing is that I know when I have that attitude, just looking out ways to serve. Uh, one thing is that here, when we set up, when we do all this stuff, there's a ton of ways to serve. With the Acts 4 stuff, to serve here, other churches, um, any ministries, just ways to plug in, you know. Email me from the website. Look at different ways, maybe even as ways to serve around here. Uh, with Acts 4, just as we continue to plug along and just go here, God will just provide opportunities and do things. And so if you're in that place of what can I do, it's great to plug in to actually be doing something. And so to piggyback on that thought, it's also really nice to plug into places and things where it's like it's almost like a natural fit. Where it's like, oh, like I'm doing this and I'm liking doing it. Like it's a pretty good fit. Like I actually like doing this stuff. Um, you know, you probably don't want Mr. Outgoing, Mr. Personable, who has to be up and about, center of the party. You know, the best place for him is probably not to, like, to be running a website in the cubicle. Like, this <laughs> he can try, and what can I do, and he's helping, and that's cool. But I'd like to have him kind of fit into a place that would be helpful. And as far as Christianity goes, and the church goes, right, God gives us talents. He also gives us spiritual gifts. And those are two different things. And spiritual gifts are meant to build up the church and to build up the body of Christ. Build up the church, build the body of Christ. So I thought one way that might be helpful to you is that I offered a link here as far as spiritual gift, like assessment thing. They have all kinds of different online ones. We can take this assessment and you can kind of see and it breaks down for you what are my spiritual gifts. How can I help build up the body? And I took it myself, this particular one. There's a bunch. This one's pretty decent. It's pretty good. And you take and answer all these questions. It doesn't take too long. And then it gives you kind of a nice breakdown as far as kind of how your spiritual gifts are and um, where they... Uh, where it might best be used and it gives you a little explanation. It's actually pretty cool. And I felt like, you know, I was pretty much right on the money. I've taken a few before and this one kind of fell right in line with that. But it's another way to help you in that response to what can I do? What can I do? Because it's also nice to know yourself really well and plug into an area that, like, feels pretty natural for you. Feels pretty natural for you. So hopefully those things are helpful. Um, but at the end of the day, I hope you come away with Right, this passage is all about just God, unbelievably super powerful, supernatural God that can just turn things in a second. Or it might take a long time and it'll turn in a while. It might turn in a while. It's kinda nice when it happens right away, right? I can't lie about that. But sometimes it just takes a little while. And so God, whatever man was intended for evil, he can just come along and just turn that thing all together. That's the God that we serve. 24-7 and it just might not seem like that sometimes. You just get in the mundane routine of you know, work and getting chores done and it's just, just look around. It doesn't seem to be like really a whole lot happening. You know, we walk by faith, right? Not by sight. Walking by faith, not by sight. And so a personal habit of mine is just I like to read about these older guys, the older giants of the faith just because they just, they just help strengthen it. They just help strengthen it. Just see these guys, the way they lived, the type of disciplines they had, um, the way they viewed life, and the way they prioritized things. It's just, I just, just don't see a lot of that. Just don't see, and so it's encouraging to read that stuff and be around that. So, uh, so let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer.